have a recurring nightmare. Once in a while, I will wake up in a sweat and a panic, gasping for breath, but glad to be reassured by Kath that it wasn't true. Now, my nightmare is not to do with falling from high buildings, nor drowning in deep water, nor even being pursued by spiders and scorpions. No, to me, it's even more frightening than that. My nightmare involves me walking to the front of the church to preach and discovering that I haven't prepared a sermon. And even though I might try to wing it, and kid my listeners, I know that's not good enough. I've been entrusted with handling God's word, and to be unprepared for that is my worst nightmare. I'm not kidding, genuinely, genuinely, that is my nightmare. That has woken me up on several occasions. And there are other maybe preachers and Bible teachers here who are able to relate to exactly that sort of feeling. Uh, Mind you, you might tell me that your greatest nightmare also involves me walking to the front to preach, Um, but that's another problem. You see, the greatest responsibility of pastors is to preach and to teach God's truth. Indeed, I consider it to be the highest privilege that any person could be given. It was reported that the great missionary to India, William Carey, had become deeply concerned about the attitude of his son, Felix. The young man, who was a professing Christian, had promised to become a missionary. But he broke his vow when he was appointed special ambassador to Burma. And Carey requested prayer for him. He said this, Pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the King of Kings. Indeed, as we've seen in earlier messages in our series into Timothy, it's the truth of the gospel that is the most powerful weapon that any Christian can have in their armory. And for Timothy, faced with the pressures of pastoring the church in Ephesus, God's word, empowered by God's spirit, was his only resource. And Paul knew that Satan's primary target of attack would be that truth. He knew that the attack on that truth would come in a variety of ways. He knew that Satan would seek to silence the messengers of that word, either by intimidation or imprisonment. He knew that Satan would seek to discredit that word through the inconsistent lives of Christ's followers. He knew that Satan would seek to destroy that word through heresy and false teaching. And it's this tactic of diverting God's servants from focusing on the truth by diverting them into speculative heresies that Paul raises with Timothy in the passage before us. Hope you have it open there, page 1196. And in this passage, Paul uses two main images to get over his point. First of all, there's that of being a worker, and then secondly, that of being a household implement. So my first point is this. God's truth 
requires careful handling, not careless speculation. God's truth requires careful handling, not careless speculation. He writes this in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And by the way, when Paul tells Timothy to do his best, by the way, it's not like your mother uh, who is telling you to do your best in the school races. You remember that? She knew you wouldn't win, but but try anyway was what she was saying. No, no, no. It, It has a much stronger force than that. It meant work at it with persistent zeal. This is serious. This is hard work. This requires excellence. And what Timothy had to do, especially as pastor of that church in Ephesus, was to correctly handle that word of truth. Now, that Greek word for handle, actually, it appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It only crops up here. And there are just two uses of it in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Septuagint was when, about 200 BC, they they translated the Hebrew and Aramaic into uh, Greek. And so when you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, there in Proverbs 3, verse 6, It says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's the first occurrence of that word. And then Proverbs 11, verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them. That's the second occurrence of that word. So the emphasis of this word is upon cutting a straight road for God's word. Now, this was especially relevant and understandable for the times when Paul was writing. You will know, uh, if you ever did the Romans at school, that Roman roads were famed for how straight they would be. They just went straight. If there was a hill, they didn't go around the hill, they cut away through the hill. They were straight roads. So what Paul is telling Timothy is that anyone who handles God's word must make it plain and clear. No detours, no bends, just transparently straight and true and reliable. And actually, it helps to see the contrast that Paul intends with the false teachers there in verse 18. He says, who have wandered away from the truth. These are the false teachers. And the image there is of an arrow that that misses its target. You see, these people handled Scripture in a crooked way. It goes off course. It fails to achieve what it should. Whereas Timothy was to be straight and effective and clear. And could I just say, this responsibility is not just for those of us who have the privilege of ministering God's Word here on a Sunday but for all who in any way have responsibility for teaching this word. You may have the responsibility for teaching the Bible to a children's group or to a youth group or to a women's Bible study. Each of us must work at this with the utmost commitment so that we make it clear and straight and plain. 
You see, it's never good enough to open your teaching manual on a Saturday evening, if you are a Sunday school teacher, to see what you have to say the following day. Work such as this requires perseverance and zeal. Maybe you can now see why I have the nightmares that I do. You see, this is, this is serious. This is vital work, and to be deficient in it means that you're a worker who should be ashamed of their shoddy handiwork. For you see, Paul is drawing a contrast between correctly handling God's truth and indulging in careless speculation. He puts it like this in the following verses. They're in verses 16 to 18. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Now, look, that actually gets us closer to what the problem was that Timothy was facing. Now, there was a, there was a heresy around at the time. Don't worry too much about it. It was called... Gnosticism, and it was beginning to infect the church. Gnosticism taught that what is physical, what is material, is evil. Uh, and therefore, Jesus didn't really have a real human body, and therefore didn't really die, and therefore there can't really be a future resurrection of real bodies, which all sounds a bit weird and alien to us. Gnosticism like that isn't around uh, at the moment. But, but, but actually, there are a couple of things attached to this teaching that do affect the church today. You see, firstly, this heresy was teaching that what the Christian is to receive uh, in heaven, in glory, is something that can be known and enjoyed now. So, for example, as we were seeing about Hymenaeus, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they were talking about the resurrection body. You can have your resurrection body now. Now, the technical expression for, for what they've got wrong here is realized eschatology. If you just want to roll that out in one of your growth groups or, you know, CU meetings, and I think you're, you're, you're dealing with an over-realized eschatology, it will look very impressive. Because that actually is what it is. It's very common today. You see, for example, some people teach that freedom from sin can be experienced now. That through a particular experience, one can be delivered from all temptations. Look, if, if folks can't be honest with themselves, maybe they'll listen to what John writes. 1 John 1, 8 and 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. And yet there are people who will tell you that have this particular experience. Let's come and pray for you and lay our hands on you and brother, sister, you're, you'll never sin again like me. No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. That, that's an over-realized eschatology. That will happen in heaven, but not yet. We're still going to struggle. We're still going to fight. Or there are others who teach that complete freedom from physical illness and pain is something that can be experienced this side of heaven. God always wants you, they say, to be healthy and happy. Name it and claim it. 
And once again, we hope that if they'll not listen to the bare facts of our mortality, because as far as I understand, one out of every one person dies, maybe they'll face up to the fact that even in this letter here in 2 Timothy, Paul had to leave one of his companions, Trophimus, sick at the port of Miletus. We read about that in chapter 4, verse 20. So, brothers and sisters, beware of those who have this unbiblical, realized, over-realized eschatology. We are going to get sick. We are going to die. But not in heaven. Not in glory. But don't start bringing that into the now. Keep holding to the biblical tension that we live in the now, but not yet. But, but secondly, this false teaching that Paul warns of seems also to be guilty of what we might call spiritualizing. That is, it strips biblical facts of their substance, but affirms the spiritual meaning of it all. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, David Jenkins was a notorious bishop of Durham. Some of you will remember him. Um, he, uh, he was the guy who, when he was installed, by the way, uh, at uh, York Minster, I think that was when the lightning hit the church, and they had a fire there. Hmm. Okay, I, I just say nothing more. Uh, but, but this bishop, David Jenkins, wrote that the resurrection was nothing more, and I quote, than a conjuring trick with bones. But the, at the same time, he said, oh, no, I believe in the resurrection not as an absolute historical fact, but as a spiritual reality. In other words, he was saying the disciples had great confidence in who Jesus was and in what he had done, and the empty tomb was just a symbol for the hope that they had. They made it up. It was just a spiritual thing because Jesus was so great. And this can all sound very clever. It can all sound very intellectual. It can sound very wise. But Paul just calls it godless chatter. And as believers today, we must be careful that we're not drawn away by the latest theory or trendy movement. And I promise you, this will happen about once every 10 years, in which uh, it will grab the attention of many people, and people will come into church and say, if you do this, this is going to be the shortcut to blessing, do this. You know about it. Those of you who are older here, you've experienced this on many an occasion, haven't you? This is the thing we've got to do. This is the latest theory. This is the latest trend. If you want to have gold fillings in your teeth, or if you want to see gold flakes coming down from the ceiling, you know, we just pray in a particular way. Brothers and sisters, keep grounded in truth. Second point I want to make is this. God's truth produces godly living, not godless arguments. God's truth produces godly living, not godless arguments. See, Paul made it quite clear to Timothy that those who get carried away with these false teachings reap an inevitable harvest. There are consequences, actually, to their actions. In fact, he lists six. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, he says, it's of no value. Chapter 2, verse 14, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. Literally, in the Greek, it means there is no profit. It's to no one's advantage to do this. Number two, he says, it ruins those who listen. 
Verse 14, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And the word there is the word catastrophe. It's the sense of being something being overturned, something being overthrown. It's only other use in the New Testament is found in 2 Peter 2 verse 6 where it says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, by catastrophe. So not only are these teachings, these false teachings of no profit, they are also to the enormous and serious detriment of those who take notice of them. Thirdly, it makes the hearers more and more ungodly. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So any teachings which divert away from Bible truth and the centrality of Christ can only have one effect. They will not build up. Rather, they will actively damage the hearer. False doctrine will not counter error. It will not help the believer. It will not strengthen them in the fight for Christ's likeness. Rather, it will have the opposite effect. Fourthly, it will spread like poison. Verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Now, the Greek word from which gangrene is transliterated could refer to cancers as well as blood poisonings. It had the sense of something which is insidious and vile and progressive. You see, for, for Roman soldiers at the time Paul was writing, gangrene was always an issue. If they had been cut in battle, you see, if not treated quickly, it would spread throughout the body, leading to potential amputation or death. And, and this is how seriously Paul views these false and diverting teachings. It will spread like poison. Fifthly, it will destroy the faith of some. Verse 18, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Uh, the word there, destroy, means to upset or overturn. And whilst the faith of God's true children cannot be destroyed, the reality is that some who were investigating the truth claims of the Christian faith will give up. You see, what might seem like a little harmless heresy can undermine the whole. For example, if there is no physical resurrection, as these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were saying, if there is no physical resurrection, then the whole work of Christ on the cross is called into question. It doesn't make sense. Little wonder those trendy teachings turned many away from saving faith in Christ and they have been doing so ever since. Sixthly, it will produce quarrels. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. You see, inevitably, when you discard the authority of Scripture in favor of human reason, then you will have quarrels. For no longer is the basis for our teaching the truth of God's word, which is to be recognized and submitted to, but rather one man's ideas set, aside, set alongside another. You'll have quarrels, inevitably. So have you grasped the seriousness of what Paul is talking about? Can you see why he warns Timothy so strongly about these diverting and distorting doctrines? 
they're destructive of spiritual life. They're ruinous to spiritual growth. They're divisive to church unity. So we must avoid them. Instead, like Timothy, we must choose to be household implements who can be used to do work that will honor God and bless his people. That's what Paul is getting at in verses uh, 20 to uh, uh, 21 and follows. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now, in, in one sense, it's not important what precise implements Paul has in mind. It's not clear. But Paul probably had in mind the implements that were being used in temple worship. Some were used for very special and holy tasks, but others were used to shovel up the dung deposited by the animals who were brought to be sacrificed. And Paul seems to be saying to Timothy that by rejecting these fanciful and spurious teachings and sticking instead to the truth of God's word, then we can be useful to God and his kingdom. So in distinction to those false teachers, Paul writes about certain characteristics that will mark out the person who's committed to the truth. We've seen what marks out the person who is just having, having these idle, fanciful discussions. But for the person who is committed to the truth, we're told this in verse 21. We're told they will be pure and holy and useful and prepared. In verse 22, we're told they will flee evil and pursue faith, love, peace, and partnerships. In verse 23, we're told that they will demonstrate discernment. In verse 24, they will demonstrate kindness and credibility. And in verse 25, forgiveness and humility, courage and optimism. You see, the contrast between the person who is committed to knowing and sharing God's truth and the casual and careless Bible manipulator is massive. So, as we close, let's finish with three general applications. Number one, keep centered on the essentials. Keep centered on the essentials. Notice the balance that Paul establishes at the start of this section, uh, verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. So before Timothy starts warning the believers there at Ephesus about quarreling, he is told to keep reminding them of certain things. Now, what were these things he was to keep reminding them of? Well, when you look in the preceding verses, you discover that Paul gives a basic outline of gospel truth. There in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel must be kept central. The work of Christ must be kept central. And so often it is as we stay centered on Christ and his gospel 
that all the other things that can come flooding in as diversions and distractions are seen in their correct light. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep centered on the essential. Secondly, remain encouraged by the truth. Remain encouraged by the truth. Because Paul gives this encouragement drawn from the Old Testament scriptures. There in verse 19, he says this, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, actually, this is probably a reference to an incident that happened in the earlier history of Israel, when Moses' authority was called into question by a guy called Korah, and 250 other community leaders. Uh, we read about it in Numbers 16, verse 5. Moses said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will make that person come near him. The man he chooses he will cause to come near him. In other words, do you see what Paul is doing? He's assuring Timothy that the Lord does indeed know and recognize his own people. But the Lord is able to distinguish between the genuine and the false. And the external sign for that is that the Lord's own people will turn away from wickedness. Those who continue in their sin and rebellion are giving evidence that they were never the Lord's in the first place. So let Scripture guide your judgments and attitudes rather than the prevailing popularity polls. Because, guys, we are under such pressure today in the age we live. And people are saying, if we want to communicate the gospel faithfully, then we've just got to give up on particular points. Now, here's the world's agenda. Here's the equalities agenda that's coming through. And uh, how on earth can we expect to be able to communicate the wonderful news of Jesus unless we sign up hook, line, and sinker for the complete equality agenda. And so many have said, oh, okay, we will follow the latest opinion polls and people will be happy with us and then they'll listen to our message. No, 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 we're going to stand on the scriptures. We're going to stand on what God's word says. Men's opinions come and go, they shift around, but God's word doesn't change. The need remains to understand that we are sinners, each one of us are sinners, but in Jesus Christ, there is a savior for sinners who is gracious and merciful and loves us more than you could ever possibly uh, understand. Third thing, final thing, by way of application is this. Expect God to bring about change. Expect God to bring about change. See, is it the pastor's job to bring to an end these quarrelsome folk? Maybe by way of personality, should he sort of muscle them out of the way? Not at all. Listen to Paul's advice. Verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So, Timothy, says Paul, don't descend to their level. Don't get embroiled in their arguments and quarrels. Don't share their power-hungry mentality. 
Rather, live out the truth of God and teach that truth. For it is that truth that can bring about repentance in their lives. And when there is repentance, then they will be open to what the rest of God's word has to say. As God's truth is grasped in the head, as it were, intellectually, then moral character is built. So don't be diverted. Don't let trivial passing fads dominate your life. Keep God's big truth as your controlling and as your primary passion. There's a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was uh, executed by the Nazis in the last year of the war, the Second World War. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, because I am a Christian, therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the Word of God. And as a Christian, I learn to know the Holy Scriptures in no other way than by hearing the Word preached and by prayerful meditation. Let's pray.